All right. So this is a new semester, a new uh, quarter, I guess. Um, so uh, for those of you who have been with me for the whole journey from Genesis 1 to 11, you have the whole background. For uh, those who are coming in new, we're going to be starting in Genesis chapter 12, but really I'm going to do a little bit of a transition from chapter 11 to chapter 12. For those of you who are not here with me last time, uh, this is a little bit of bio about me, um, my background. Um, I, have, I have degrees in chemical engineering and physics. Um, I was a physics professor at the Naval Academy. Um, I was the associate chair of the physics department there. Uh, I retired from the Navy a little while ago, 2007. Um, so coming up on 16 years since I retired from the Navy. And my family and I joined Hope Bible Church in September, became formal members in September 2021. And so, and there's some pictures of me and my family. And I put the picture, I was in Iraq for the, for the actual invasion part of Iraq in 2003. And um, I put that picture up there because it's, I'm going to come back to it uh, when we talk about where Abraham came from. Uh, because I'll, as I'll show you, that picture was taken really close to where Abraham came from. I'll, I'll, show it, uh, I'll show it to you on a map in just a little while. So what we're going to learn today, um, we're going to learn about, we're going to start with the genealogy from Shem to Abraham at the very end of chapter 11 to show you the connection from uh, the flood and the Tower of Babel to the events in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham. Then we're going to do a little bit of an overview of Abraham's life. Um, and then we're going to talk about God's call of Abraham to leave his home. And then the fact that it's a part of the family, uh, Abraham's father, Terah, and part of the family leaves their home and travels. Uh, they tr first travel to Haran, um, and then Abraham, Sarah, and Lot continue on to Canaan, and actually they all go all the way to Egypt. Uh, we'll talk about God's promises to Abraham, uh, land, descendants, and blessing. Those are the three things that God promises to Abraham, starting in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, and then we'll, we'll, we're going to do a little, um, a big picture overview of, of why, why Abraham is important in the whole uh, story of the scriptures and the whole story of the plan of God's redemption of mankind. Why is Abraham so important? And we're going to look at it from the perspective of faith and works. Faith and works, and we're going to we're going to answer this question: What's going on here uh, with faith and works? And so, um, to put the whole thing in perspective, what we're going to do during this class is we're going to look at Genesis 12 to 50, so 38 chapters, 39 chapters of the Bible. And when we did Genesis 1 to 11, we did 11 chapters in 25 lessons. Now we're going to do 38 chapters in 13 lessons. So the pace is going to be quite a bit faster. And um, when I've taught in the past, I've taught through Genesis before, and I usually take 75 lessons to do chapter 12 to 50. 75 lessons, so about a year and a half going every Sunday. And so we're going to do that in 13 lessons, what I usually do in 75 lessons. So a little bit, a little bit faster. Uh, and so essentially we're going to do, we're going to focus on four people. We're going to do Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. We're going to talk about those four people, why they're important, why they're important in God's plan of redemption 
of mankind. And so the first four weeks are going to be focused on the life of Abraham. And we're going to start with an overview. So uh, where does it fit in the, in the book of Genesis? And so Genesis is divided into these sections that are headed by the Hebrew word toledot. Toledot means what came forth from. Hebrew word means what came forth from. And so what came forth from Shem is where we're going to start. So the descendants of Shem. And then what came forth from Terah is uh, a large section of scripture from Genesis, the end of Genesis 11, all the way through Genesis 25. And so what came forth from Terah was Abraham. So it's the story of Abraham. The Toledot of Terah is what came forth from Terah was Abraham. Um, so that's what we'll do. And then, of course, we'll eventually get to the Toledot of Isaac and the Toledot of Jacob. What came forth from Jacob, and that was uh, the 12 sons. And particularly, most of that section of scripture is focused on Joseph, one of his sons. And as, we, as I mentioned before, when we study Genesis 1 to 11, uh, the purpose of the scriptures, what's included in the scriptures, is to show God's plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. And so when we looked at the genealogies before, you would see uh, very short genealogies for some branches of the human family, and then a much more extensive genealogy for one particular line. And the reason for the scripture following that one particular line was not because that line was necessarily any better or more important. The reason they were important was because that's the line that's leading to Christ. So that's the one you, that, that the scripture follows, the line of people that's going to lead to the Messiah. And so that's Abraham's line and Isaac's line, not Esau's line. We get a few descendants of Esau, but then we focus on Isaac. Um, it's uh, uh, Jacob and Esau, I'm sorry, Jacob we're going to follow his line, not so much Esau's line. We're going to follow Isaac's line, not so much Ishmael's line in the scriptures. Because that's the line that's leading to the Messiah. And that's the purpose of the scriptures. Okay, so uh, if we follow the genealogy, so we start with Noah coming off the ark, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, we did these genealogies before when we did uh, Genesis chapter 10. But the one genealogy then that the Bible follows after after Babel, after the, uh, the dispersal in Genesis chapter 11 in Babel, it follows one particular line, and that's the line of Shem. And so we get Noah, Shem, Arphaxad, Selah, Eber, Pelig. Now Pelig is the, is the generation where we had the Tower of Babel. And then after that, it's Rio, Sirug, Nahor, and Terah. And we, we hear almost nothing we, we, we learn nothing about Ryu, Sirug, Nahor. Tira, then, is the father of Abraham, and the narrative picks back up in the end of chapter 11 and going into chapter 12. And then, of course, there's Abraham. And Abraham, has, we'll see, has all these descendants, but we only follow very particular descendants of Abraham. Uh, not the ones through Ishmael, not the ones through all those sons of Keturah, but it's through Sarah's son Isaac that we follow after that. So uh, if we look at the uh, genealogies, um, the, it's a chrono genealogy still, uh, which tells us the timing, how much time had passed. So uh, Shem has Arphaxed when he's 100. Arphaxed has Shelah when he's 35. Shelah has Eber when he's 30. Eber has Pelig when he's 34. Pelig has Ryu when he's 30. Um, Ryu has Sirug when he's 32. 
And these people are living for a long time, as we pointed out before. Shem lives to be uh, 600, so he lives 500 years after the flood. Uh, Arphaxid, Shela, and Eber live into their 400s. And then the generation after the, uh, the dispersal at Babel live into their 200s. Peleg 239, Reu 239, Sirach 230. The uh, ages are coming down. And then Nahor is the father of Terah. He dies when he's only 148. Uh, Terah is 70, and then he starts to have, uh, he has kids. Um, he has, um, he has one of, and one of his children is Abraham. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about some of his, his other children and how the, the, uh, the family tree for Abraham's family is kind of a little bit intermingled. So uh, the big picture is Terah becomes the son of Sirug, and he fathers, um, is the son of Sirug. He fathers th- uh, three children, uh, the three sons that we know of, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, um, after he's 70. Uh, the, he lives in Ur of the Chaldeans, or Chaldees, and I'll show you on a map where that is in a minute. It was a major training city in the southern part of Mesopotamia. Most likely from archaeology, uh, the... Persian Gulf came further up north in ancient times, and so Ur of the Chaldees was most likely on the coast. Uh, now it's not. It's in the middle of the desert now. But then it was most likely on the coast. Uh, Terah takes Abraham and his grandson Lot and Abraham's wife Sarai. They leave Ur of the Chaldees and they go to the land of Canaan, but they settle on the way in Haran. Terah dies there at 205. And so if you look at this genealogy of just Terah. Uh, we know of three sons, Abraham, Nahor, and, and Haran. Um, Sarah is listed in other parts of the Bible as his uh, daughter, uh, but kind of as the half-sister of Abraham. Maybe not the same mothers. Abraham and Sarah maybe didn't have the same mothers. They had the same father, Terah. But if you follow the, the line there, First of all, Nahor marries his niece. So Haran is Nahor's brother. He has a daughter named Milcah, and that daughter marries Nahor. So it's a niece and an uncle getting married. And we talked about this when we talked about uh, where did Cain get his wife. Before, you had uh, we talked about genetics and the fact that you have um, the human genome is um, accumulating mutations every single generation, about 300-point mutations per generation. If you back up far enough in history, you have many, many, many fewer mutations in the human genome, and it's much less likely to be a problem for close relatives to marry. And so close relatives did marry. Uh, They married in in Bible times, and um, even into um, more modern times, you you had first cousins, for example, marrying in uh, a fairly regular uh, was a fairly regular thing in, in uh, recorded history. Anyway, so uh, there's some intermarrying in this family of Terah, the family tree of Terah. Uh, and so Nahor and Milcah, had this, this person that Yule is their son, and they have a, a son, uh, Laban, and a daughter, Rebekah, and that daughter, Re- Rebekah, marries Isaac, Abraham and Sarah's son. So there's a mixing of this family tree again. Um, and then the same thing when Laban who is Rebecca's 
brother has children. That's who Jacob marries. And so those are Jacob's first cousins. Rebecca and uh, Leah and Rachel are Jacob's first cousins that he marries. Um, yeah, so that's the whole f- the family tree of Terah, and we're going to be starting at the top here with, uh, with Abraham and Sarah in that first generation. So um, we can look through the, some of the events of the Abraham's life, and we will. We'll get into some more details. We're just going to do a top-level view here today. Uh, but he's called uh, about the age of 70, um, and that's about 2000 B.C., to put it in a historical context, uh, to leave his homeland and go to a new land. Uh, God makes a covenant with Abraham later on. He's, he gives him a promise uh, that he first gives in, in Genesis chapter 12, but is repeated in Genesis chapter 15, repeated again in Genesis chapter 17, uh, repeated again in Gen- Genesis chapter 19. So over and over again, God comes back to this promise. He's, it's emphasized in Scripture more than once. Uh, he goes to first to a place that I'll show you on a map that's in the northern part of Syria. And then he goes down to Canaan, but he doesn't stay there. He goes to Egypt, and then he comes back. And um, he, he goes through a, a bunch of events in his life that show kind of the ups and downs of Abraham's faith. And so one of the things that, you, that comes out in Scripture is Scripture never sugarcoats its heroes. So Abraham is listed in Hebrews chapter 11, the, the Faith Hall of Fame, and we'll, we'll talk about that chapter a little bit too. Uh, but we see Abraham make mistakes uh, here in Genesis 12 to 25 in his life. He lies on a couple of occasions. He says that uh, Sarah's not his wife, that he's his sister. And he says, oh, well, it's kind of true. He's, she's like my half-sister. Uh, and he tries to rationalize his lie uh, but we see the we see Abraham warts and all in the scriptures, and the scriptures always do that. We we pointed that out with Noah. We get this uh, this case of Noah where he gets drunk and uh, and shows you know the, the 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 weaknesses and the human sinful nature of even the people that are heroes in the Bible, um, and we'll see that as we go along. Uh, so he he he's promised a son when he's about 75 years old, and the son's not born until he's 100. So he spends 25 years where God has promised him something, and the, and the fulfillment of that promise doesn't come. So, so I think we miss that sometimes, because if, for us it's only a couple minutes to read through the story. And, but, but Abraham has to wait 25 years for the fulfillment of that promise, where he has to have faith that God will fulfill his promise. And we see his faith kind of wane and wax, that his faith is strong and then it's not so strong. And, and we'll see this incident where at one point his wife Sarah becomes very frustrated with waiting for God's timing. And she comes up with a plan to help God along with her maid Hagar. And then Ishmael is born because of that. And, of course, uh, Ishmael is... Uh, the father of all of the Arabs today. And so that one mistake that Abraham and Sarah made is still with us today, still. I mean, there's still uh, all this uh, prob- these problems between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac. 
all the way till today, you can read about it in the newspaper these days. That one mistake still resonates. The, the, the consequences of that sin have lasted now for 4,000 years and counting. Um, and so we will see that in, in the story of Abraham as well. Uh, Sarah passes away. She's 127. Abraham's 137 when Sarah passes away. And so naturally he gets himself another wife. Uh, and he has a bunch more kids after the age of 137. Um, okay, so the story of Abraham. Um, there, there, I've got a chart in here. But Oh, let me, let me point this out. Um, these slides are all available. Uh, I always put, post them on Hope Book. Do take a. You can look at these. That you're. You can download them, and uh, and look at them because yes. Well, he, so Abraham is seems to be some sort of a special case, and and yes, he keeps having kids when he's really old. He has a kid at 100, and he has a bunch more kids after he's 137. Yeah. So he did. So it, it, the Bible tells us that he sent those kids to the east to separate them from Isaac. He gave them. Uh, he, his whole inheritance went to Isaac, but he gave gifts during his lifetime to the sons of Keturah and sent them to the east, is what the Bible says. And so their descendants are, you know, some of the peoples to the east of Canaan are descendants of Abraham through his wife Keturah as well. Yeah, yeah. But, but Ishmael, we can actually follow some of the descendants of Ishmael uh, because there's some genealogies of Ishmael, not not so much the sons of Keturah, but Ishmael. We have some genealogies after that, and uh, and so we can follow a little bit through history where those descendants of Ishmael went. And yeah, there there have been big problems between those descendants of Ishmael. Uh, but Abraham ex- evidently took steps to try to at least make sure that didn't happen right away with his children from Keturah. He sent them separated them, put geographical separation between them and Isaac. Yeah, good good question, good comment. Uh, so yeah, so take a look at this uh, uh, timeline of Abraham, and uh, I put in this one because it has the chapter and the verse for these major events in Abraham's life, and you can go and look them up. Uh, we're going to go through a lot of these events uh, as we go through the class, uh, but th- this is a handy chart, I think, to see what was happening through Abraham's life, how old he was and what the verse was that corresponds to his meeting with Melchizedek, for example, in Genesis chapter 14. Um, and then all the way down through uh, his, um, uh, his death in Genesis chapter 25. Uh, Genesis chapter 24, of course, is all about Isaac. Um, and then we hear about Abraham again in chapter, chapter 25 with his death. Okay, so uh, let's take a look at what the scriptures say about uh, Abraham's family. Uh, So if you open up your Bible to the very end of Genesis chapter 11, uh, we'll start in uh, verse 31 in chapter 11. And so this very last section of chapter 11, 31 and 32, um, it says... And Terah took his son Abram. So uh, I've been very loosely calling Abraham all along, but of course his name was originally Abram, and then later on we'll see God changes it to Abraham. 
But whenever uh, the New Testament refers back, it always refers to him as Abraham. Um, and so usually I'll just refer him to Abraham, as Abraham. But uh, here in chapter 11, he's still Abram. So Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot and his son Haran and his daughter-in-law Sarai. And so Sarah, of course, is Sarai. And then God changes her name to Sarah. Uh, his son Abram's wife, Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran, and actually that's a different word. So uh, it's spelled the same in English, the name of the man Haran, the name of the town Haran, are not the same. That's not the same word. It's not even pronounced the same. Um so the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So Terah dies along the way. They stop in Haran. I'll show you where that is on a map in a minute. Uh, and Terah dies there. Um, and then in chapter 12, it says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that's how 12 starts. And then, yeah, yes, go ahead. Which interpretation, which Bible version are you using? Um, NASB is what I will normally use, and I think I think these are NASB. Um, if it's not NASB, then... Um, let me know, and I'll, I'll change it. I, th I think I've used NASB for all of these. NASB 95 is what I'll typically use. Um, and then continuing in Genesis 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 4, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai's wife and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. And they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Morah. And the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him, and he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. And so there's a two-part journey, Ur to Haran, Haran down to Canaan. And actually, as we'll see, he actually keeps going all the way to Egypt. He keeps going to the south, as it says, here in verse 9. And notice that he's starting to accumulate possessions. So he gets up to Haran in, um, in the north of Syria, but he ends up accumulating people, possessions, servants, all sorts of things. And so it's a big group that goes from Haran down into Canaan. Not just three people. It's a big group. Well, yeah, so he's the head of the family. So Tira's the head of the family. Now, God called Abram, but evidently Abram told his dad, and his dad 
comes to, and his dad's the head of the household all the way till they get up to Haran and he dies. Yeah, so, so it is very interesting that it, God called Abram, but, it, but Terah, then it says Terah took his son. So Terah's the head of the household. He's the, he's the patriarch of the family. And so when they do that trip up to Haran, Abram's still under Terah. Terah's the head of the family. And so that's the way the Bible puts it. Terah and his, took his son and his grandson, Lot, and they go up. But, but then Terah dies in Haran. Evidently, so they they somehow Tira knew or decided that they were going to leave her and go up. And the Bible tells us that it was God telling Abram. Well, we have to infer because it doesn't say in the pages of Scripture that Abram went to Tira and said, "Hey, God just told me to move," and Tira obeyed the command that had been given to Abram and and got up and left. But the, notice the other two sons. They didn't. Uh, Nahor and Haran, the other two sons, there's no mention of them going on this journey. They stayed. I, uh, yeah. I always thought that was actually disobedient of Abram because I always thought that God called him to go and him to go. And he was like, I'm not going alone. Everybody's coming with me kind of thing. That's, that's what I always thought, that he just wasn't doing what he was told. So well, saying no. Well, uh, there's nothing in Scripture that says one way or the other. Right. But it just seems to me that how did Tira even know to go this direction? Right, right. Uh, he got, yeah, he, it seems to me he must have got it from Ab- Abram. Sure, sure. And Tira was um, obedient enough to God to listen to what God had said to his son Abram. But notice that the other two boys, uh, Nahor and Haran, they didn't go. Um, anyway, so, um, yeah. So, but you end up with this group in Haran, um, there's some part of the family goes to Haran. Now, we will find out later that, whether then or some other time, there is this. there are some of these other groups of the family that are still settled in that region because that's where Abraham sends his servant to get a, a wife for his son Isaac. It's back to Haran. So there's still elements of the family that end up they, somehow, some way, they end up in here, and, they, and they're still there when it's time to get a wife for Isaac, as we'll, as we'll see here. So, uh, what are these promises God makes to Abraham? He promises land in Genesis 12.1. That is repeated in Genesis 13. It's repeated in Genesis 15. So, this is a big emphasis for this section of Scripture. God repeats these promises. Uh, the promise of descendants, Genesis 12.2, also repeated in 17.4 and 17.6. Uh, the promise of blessing and redemption in Genesis 12.3, repeated in Genesis 21, Genesis 26, Genesis 28. This one follows through to the life of Isaac and Jacob. Uh, that's Genesis chapter 26 and 28. And then later we get a sign for this covenant uh, in Genesis chapter 17, the circumcision of males, the sign of this covenant. Uh, so we're going to follow this through uh, this covenant that God makes. Um, and so eventually, God is going to be, one of, one of the names for God, or one of the ways that he's going to be referred to, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, later on. Um, but this is the, the beginning of that, the beginning God of Abraham here in Genesis chapter 12. So, Abraham's journey. So, he starts in Ur of the Chaldees, down here. 
Um, and like I said, this is the current coastline of the Persian Gulf, but there are some significant archaeological evidence that the Persian Gulf came all the way up here and that Ur was actually a seaport. Um, and they leave there and they travel up the Euphrates River. Euphrates River goes all the way up here to Haran in what was then Paddan Aram and what is now Syria. They stay there for a while and then they travel down here to Canaan. Why don't they just go straight west from here to here? Because it's a desert and there's no water there, there's no food there. If they hug the river, they have water for themselves, for their camels, for their livestock, everything else. So that's why they got to go this way and then this way. They can't go this way. It's just nothing but a big desert. Um, okay, uh, so this is a kind of a, a relief map of what it looks like. And so you can see green around the rivers, and there's not green in other places. Uh, so it's not very hospitable to go to other places. And then there's cities along the way. Uh, most likely some of these cities existed then. Um, so Ur was a city here, but there are some other ancient cities, Eric and Isin and Babylon and Sippar and Mari. Uh, they most likely were, there were people uh, that they could have come in contact with and traded with and that sort of thing along that route uh, to Haran. And Ur is modern day where did you say? So I will show you, um, let me show you that now and I'll go back. So this is modern countries overlaid. Uh, and so Ur is in Iraq, in modern day Iraq. And so the modern day city of Basra is right there, uh, the nearest modern city to, to where Ur was. And um, I showed you that picture of, my, of me in 2003. That picture was taken west-northwest of Basra, right about where Ur was. That's where I was when I, that picture was taken. It's a place called Jaliba now, Jaliba, Iraq, and it's west-northwest of Basra, and that's right where Ur uh, was. That's where I was. Um, and then... So, uh, and then you can see that Haran up there is right by the border of Syria and Turkey. It's right on the very northern border of Syria. And uh, one of the times I taught this class, there was a lady in the class from Syria. She was a recent immigrant from Syria. And she told me that's still there. Haran is still a city in Syria, the very northern part of, city, uh, of Syria. Uh, still there. Um, so that's where they went. They went uh, from what is now Iraq into what is now Syria, to the very northern part of it, the kind of the border with Turkey. Uh, and then they traveled down to the land of Canaan from there. So uh, how long was the journey? Uh, it's about 577 miles up the Euphrates River from where we think Ur was to where Haran still is, 577 miles. So... It's a bit of a journey uh, on foot with a big household of, and animals and that sort of thing. Um, you know, months probably to make this, uh, this journey up there. Um, and then the second part of the journey um, down to uh, Canaan uh, adds another 378 or so miles. So the total journey was a little under 1,000 miles uh, to go from Ur to Shechem, where he ended up, where he did the uh, made the altar to the Lord. 
Um, and so that's, a, that's quite a journey. Uh, it was broken up by some, uh, he stayed in uh, Haran for some amount of time. It says that um, he, was, he was about 70 when he was called. He was about 75 when he left Haran. It's not clear how long it, it took for them to get ready to make the journey, how long it was after the calling to start out. But it, 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 it probably is the case that they were in Haran for a couple of years before they made the rest of the journey. Um, okay, so we already did this one, modern boundaries. Uh, all right, so, um, so that's as far as we're going to go in the actual story of Abraham. I want to um, put it into spiritual context. So why is Abraham so important? Why does the Bible spend so much time on Abraham? Uh, there's lots of other people out there that we could have been talking about, but uh, the Bible decides to focus on this man Abraham. Uh, why is that? Why is he important to God's story of redemption of mankind? And we're going to talk about it from this context of faith and works, because that's what the New Testament, the New Testament brings up Abraham over and over again, and it brings him up both in, in both contexts of faith and works. So we're going to figure out what's going on here. So... Uh, let's start in the book of Romans. So, uh, the book of Romans, chapter 4, Paul mentions uh, Abraham. Uh, he says, if you turn to your Bible in Romans chapter 4, the first three verses, what then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So Paul's making a point here that Abraham's faith was what was accounted as righteousness. Faith equaled righteousness for Abraham. Um, that's what the Old Testament says, and that's what Paul is saying. He's just quoting. Um, he's quoting from uh, Genesis fifteen six that uh, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as or counted to him for righteousness. Um, and then, um, Paul in Galatians chapter 3, if you turn over to Galatians chapter 3, <clears throat> Paul says, Therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as for righteousness, so he's quoting from Genesis again, Therefore... Know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So that's the gospel. That's what Paul's saying, that, uh, that this is kind of the proto-gospel, that God's telling Abraham what he's going to do. Uh, he's, he's saying that... Um, Christ is going to die for the sins of the world, uh, including the Gentiles, uh, Paul's pointing out here. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. <clears throat> so Paul's point couldn't be clearer. Faith. You were saved by faith. <clears throat> Romans chapter 4, Galatians chapter 3. And in both cases he, used, he uses Abraham as the example of faith. Saving by faith. Okay, 
Um, and then we get to Hebrews chapter 11. So if you turn over to Hebrews chapter 11, the Hebrews chapter 11 goes through the, uh, the history of the Old Testament and the people that had faith, the faith in God. Um, and one of those people is, is Abraham. And so by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as inheritance. So he's called from Ur, he goes to Canaan, that's going to be his place of inheritance. So Paul's saying here, or not Paul, it could be Paul, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is. Uh, the author of Hebrews, uh, ultimately the Holy Spirit, is saying by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. And we'll see this. He doesn't own anything. He, Abraham never owns anything but one little cave in this land. The whole, his whole life, all the way till he dies, he doesn't own any of this land that he's been promised. Uh, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. And we'll get to this, that, we'll talk about the details of his sacrifice of Isaac and how God intervened at the last minute and provided a sacrifice. But uh, Isaac was, or Abraham was willing to take Isaac and sacrifice him. So that's what Hebrews is referring to. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, if you turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, uh, Paul... Um, makes the statement, a very famous statement, uh, in uh, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So we have this very clear teaching in uh, several different places. We looked, we've looked at uh, Romans, we looked at Galatians, we looked at Hebrews, we looked at Ephesians, and it's all very clear and very consistent. Um, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. We just saw that one. So it seems pretty clear. Everything is decided, right? There's no contradiction. There's no possibility of um, error or confusion, right? Yes. Yeah, so they, they grazed. They had places where they grazed, and they moved around, and they grazed their herds, but, uh, but they didn't own the land. So Abraham grazed in a certain area, and Lot went over and grazed in a certain area, uh, but they didn't actually own land um, until much later. He, he actually buys a particular field with a cave in it, um, but they don't actually own anything until uh, so much, much later. <laughs> so, no, so they don't own anything. Um, this land they are promised, it takes a long, 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 long time before they get that land. When do they get the land? When Joshua goes in there and takes it by force. That's when they finally get the land that God promised to Abraham hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before. It's when Joshua finally goes in and they take it. Uh, because there's people there that own that land. When Abraham gets there, there's the Canaanite. All those Canaanites own all that land. Uh, he lives in... Uh, he lives... Abimelech has a kingdom there in Gerar, and, and Abimelech lets Abraham, uh, you know, um, he lets him graze his flocks and all that sort of thing, but Abraham doesn't own that land. He, he actually has to buy a cave to bury his dead in, but uh, no, they don't own anything until much, 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 much later. 
Okay. Good. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, he's a foreigner sojourning in a in a foreign land. That's uh, that's right. Uh, but so let's get back to this idea of faith. It's all clear. There's no contradictions, right? Very uh, nobody has any any contradictions. Well, what about this? What about James chapter two? James chapter two comes along and says. So turn over to James chapter two. Let's take a look at this this scripture because James uses. Abraham is his example too. James chapter 2, starting in verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Wait a minute. Hebrews chapter 11 says that Abraham, when he was by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered Isaac. James chapter 2 says, Abraham, our father, justified by works. When he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. What's going on here? What is going on here? It's the same exact example. And the author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that it's by faith that Isaac was offered up. And James, under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit, says that Abraham was justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar. Mm -hmm. What is going on here? Here, what is going on here? Faith or works? Which is it? Which is it? Faith. Faith or works? Okay, so let's dig in. Uh, turn over to Luke chapter five. Luke chapter five. Um, there's a there's a recorded incident in the life of the ministry of Jesus in Luke chapter five, and I want to go through this so that we can understand this idea of faith and works. So, Luke chapter 5, if you go over there, it's starting in verse 18. Um, it's a familiar story. I think you'll recognize it when you get there. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in to set him down in front of him, Jesus, in front of Jesus. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof. And let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd, in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So they're thinking this. They didn't say that, they're thinking it. But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, 
get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. So what's going on in this story? Um, Take a look at your Bible. In verse 20, what did Jesus see? And what did he do in response? What does the Bible say? What What did Jesus see? Their faith. faith. He saw their faith. And so, uh, can we see people's faith? Yeah, yeah. So that's where we're going. But can we actually see, can I look at a person and see their faith just by looking at them when they haven't done anything? No, No, we can't. Jesus could see their faith in verse 20. What does he do in response? He tells, your, tells the guy, your sins are forgiven. Bold statement. Your sins are forgiven. He, he looks into their hearts and sees their faith and tells them, your faith has saved you. Your, your sins are forgiven. Um, in verse 21, what was the religious leader's objection? That only God can forgive sins. So they say, they say, hey, wait a minute. There's a man, and he just said he gave, forgave sins. Only God can forgive sins. And so they're, they're groping towards the truth. They're, they're like halfway there. They, they realize one part of it. Only God can forgive sins. Well, this guy just said he forgave sins, and therefore he's blaspheming. But what's the real truth? Jesus is God. That's why he's able to forgive sins. Uh, so their objection is on the right track. Wait a minute. Only God can forgive sins. And so if this guy forgave sins, there's only one of two possibilities, right? Either he's a blasphemer or he really is God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, they wouldn't accept that he really was God. Uh, what reason did Jesus give in verse 24 for healing the man? So why does he do the miracle in this passage? What does verse 24 say? So he, he gives the reason. He doesn't all, we don't always get the reason explicitly given for miracles in the Bible, but here we do. Jesus comes right out and says the reason for the miracle. What is the reason for the miracle given in verse 24? That you may know the Son of Man has authority to give to forgive sins on earth. So uh, he gets, starts off with a little clever phrase, what's easier to do, to say your sins are forgiven or to get up and walk? What, what's the an- real answer to that question? Um, well, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven because nobody can see that. But to actually forgive sins, that's the really hard part, to actually forgive sins. Uh, but to say that you've forgiven sins, well, that's easy. Nobody can tell. And so the reason he gives this does this miracle that everybody can see is to prove the thing that people couldn't see. So he's, there's been a spiritual transaction. A guy has faith and his sins have been forgiven. But nobody can see that spiritual transaction, right? Nobody, nobody in the room can see, can, can verify whether the guy's sins are actually forgiven or not, except Jesus. He knows for sure. Uh, so he does a, something they can see. He makes a guy that's paralyzed get up and walk, something they can actually see, he does, to confirm that spiritual transaction. Yes? When it says, uh, you said, uh, 
that Jesus could see in their hearts, and that's true, of course, mm -hmm. you do that. But I've always read that as being when he saw their faith, the fact that their actions, their works, right. tearing, tearing the roof apart, yeah. and dropping him down in front of Jesus, yeah. was the thing that... Yeah, so uh, there's two ways to look at that. Yes, that's that's true. Also, there could be other motivations for wanting the guy to get saved, uh, uh, wanting the guy to get well. So, But he could see that their motives were pure, their, their actual intentions were the fact that they had faith. But yes, the, also the, the actions of the people, the men that were his friends, are a work that shows their faith as well. Yes. Okay, uh, so that's one example. That's a spiritual transaction that nobody can see, and God does a miracle, Jesus does a miracle that is a work that demonstrates the fact of a spiritual transaction. That, so something that people can see to, um, to validate something that they can't see. All right, uh, let, me go, let me do at least one more example. So Jesus on the cross. And John, so turn over to John chapter 19. Uh, John chapter 19, starting verse 30. Um, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour, so Jesus on the cross. Uh, we're, it's going through the events of Jesus on the cross. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So what does he mean it's finished there? Uh, Jesus does all kinds of stuff after this, right? He's buried, he, he, comes, he rises from the dead, he, he walks around and he, he, he gives instruction to his disciples, he gives his last instructions to his disciples, he, he ascends into heaven, and, and oh, by the way, he's coming back again. So what's finished? He's got lots and lots of more stuff he's going to do, and stuff that he still hasn't done, and he's, we're told in the Bible he's coming back again. Uh, so what's finished? So... The key to understand what Jesus is saying here is what, what does that Greek word actually mean? The Greek word tetelestai that's translated, it is finished there. That's what it means, it's finished. It's an accounting term. It's a term from accounting that means paid in full. So what is Jesus saying there on the cross? Paid in full. What is paid in full? So our sins are paid. It's, it's finished in the sense that he's paid the full price for our sins, and that's done. It is finished. To tell us that I paid in full. That's what he's saying up there on the cross. Uh, now that's a spiritual transaction. Could anybody see that spiritual transaction occur? No, I couldn't see that spiritual transaction. God knew. Jesus knew. He said it's finished. The spiritual transaction is done. Sins are paid for. But that's not something any human being can see. We can't see spiritual transactions. So... Um, the, so, what what did what did God do? What work did God do to validate that spiritual transaction? The resurrection. And so, uh, when we when we turn over to First Corinthians fifteen, so First Corinthians fifteen is the clearest statement of the gospel in the in the entire Bible. So, uh, and in fact, Paul Paul writes this the. 15th chapter of Corinthians, and he starts out with a very clear statement. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. So he announces what I'm about to say is going to be the gospel. It says right there, uh, that's how he starts the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And then um, he goes on to say that, and here's what it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, 
and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Uh, so that's the statement of the gospel there at the beginning of the 15th chapter. But then, um, I don't have time to do a full exposition of 1 Corinthians 15. He goes on to uh, make it really clear that, the, that it's really important that it's an eyewitness account. Over and over again, he talks about the people that were eyewitnesses of Jesus on the cross, Jesus resurrected, people that saw the resurrected Christ, including Paul himself, and how important that was that it was attested by eyewitnesses, that this was all a historical fact. And then he explains why, why that's so important. He says, starting in verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith is also also is vain. In verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. That sounds familiar. It sounds like what James said in James chapter 2. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So uh, what is Paul saying here? Uh, Paul's, when Paul gets to the, to the absolutely essential fact of something that happened, um, and if it didn't happen, then your faith is useless and vain. Which event is it? Is it the cross, or is it the empty tomb? It's the empty tomb. It's the it's the place where God showed the uh, the he he made a miracle miraculous event to validate the the spiritual transaction. The Tetelestai on the cross, it is finished, was validated by an event that everybody could see. And Paul makes the great point that there, there were, he appeared to this person, he appeared to this person, he appeared to 500 people at once, and some of those people are still alive, and you can go ask them about it. Um, this event that God did to validate the spiritual transaction is well attested by eyewitnesses, Paul says. And, oh, by the way, if it wasn't true, then your faith is totally vain and, you're, and it's worthless. Um, and so this is a, a, a pattern in the scripture. The, this is the way God does things. There can, there's a spiritual transaction that nobody can see, and he validates it by something that everybody can see. And that event that everybody can see that's the most important in history, of course, is the resurrection that attests to the great spiritual transaction on the cross. Uh, and that's what's... Um, that's why Abraham is called as an example to uh, both of those things. Um, so, uh, Jesus on the cross. So, in John 19.30, what was the spiritual transaction that takes place on the cross? And are people able to see it? We just talked about that. I, um, I got ahead of myself, so everybody knows the answer, right? So, what's the spiritual transaction that takes place on the cross? Our sins are paid for. But, but that is a spiritual transaction that nobody can see. Our sins being paid for. Um, so, in light of what we learned from the Luke 5 story, um, what was necessary still? What physical act did God use to confirm the spiritual transaction of the cross? Well, the resurrection. So the resurrection is the physical, visceral, everybody can see there's a dead guy who's walking around now. Everybody knew he was dead, and then there he is. Um, Thomas says, I won't believe until I put my hands in the, f in the nail prints and my hand in the side. And, um, but Thomas, then he sees him. And what does he say? My Lord and my God. Because he sees a physical representation, this physical 
certainty of the spiritual transaction that, that's happening. Okay, um, and then what the apostles are doing is they're testifying to that fact. That's what Paul is saying there in in, in 1 Corinthians 15, that what, what I'm testifying to Paul, what the other apostles are testifying to, is we saw Christ alive again. Uh, the, the, the physical manifestation of that spiritual transaction. All right, so back to Abraham. Back to Abraham's spiritual transaction. So uh, we learned, we saw this before in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, that it was by faith that he obeyed the call uh, to leave his country. So God told him to leave, and he got up and left. And by faith, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. So he had faith in God. And so... Um, we learn later that uh, the Bible says that he, the Abraham reasoned that God could even raise people from the dead. And so God had promised, we'll see this later on, we'll fill this in, that, that it was through Isaac that his descendants would be numbered. And so after God had promised that his descendants would definitely be numbered through Isaac, then God said, go and sacrifice Isaac. And so how, how did Abraham square that circle? The Bible tells us that Abraham figured that God could even raise people from the dead. So that was what Abraham was thinking, that even if he went up there and actually killed Isaac, God would bring him back. Because God had, he had faith that God had promised that it would be through Isaac that his descendants would be numbered, and God had promised that he was going to have lots of descendants. And so that's a real demonstration of Abraham's faith. Um, and he was able to, and, and he was able to actually go up there, put Isaac on the altar, and raise up a knife. Um, to demonstrate a physical demonstration of the spiritual transaction in his heart. Um, so, uh, whose benefit was that for? Uh, was was God in doubt about Abraham's faith? No. So God could see into his heart and knew. So, for whose benefit was that whole event? Abraham. So Abraham knew for sure that his. His faith in God was uh, was justified, and and also for us, for Abraham and for us, not for God's benefit. Um, God knew uh, Abraham's heart, and he and he knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning, so he knows what's going to happen. Uh, God, this is not for God's benefit. It's for Abraham's benefit and our benefit. Yes, Isaac as well. Isaac's as well. That's a good point. Isaac was there. <laughs> But real, uh, it's interesting to look at that from Isaac's because Isaac asked a couple questions on the way up there. Mm-hmm. Here's the wood. Here's the fire. Where's the sacrifice, Dad? Mm-hmm. Looking around, don't see one. And then um, Abraham's a pretty old man um, at this point, and Isaac just kind of lays there on the wood. He, he doesn't. There's no indication that he struggled. That that Abraham, you know, had to really battle royale to wrestle him onto that wood. He just laid him on the wood. Doesn't say, but yeah. Can you can you imagine I as a mother? Yeah. yeah, I'm gonna go slaughter your son there. Yeah, yeah. Um, Where are you going, Abraham? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's so there's many things to think about in, in this uh, in this story, uh, but um, what James is saying, what Paul is saying, are the same thing. That there's that you're saved by faith, but there's always a physical. Uh, actual manifestation of the faith because as human beings we can't see spiritual things we can't see into people's hearts we can't see spiritual transactions they are always validated by physical actions 
And in the case of our faith, that physical, that validation is works. And that's what Paul was teaching in 1 Corinthians 15. That's what James is teaching in James chapter 2. It's the same. They're not contradictory. They're teaching the same thing. Yes. So uh, let me circle back. Uh, So what was Abraham's spiritual transaction uh, that is described in Hebrews 11? So his spiritual transaction was that he actually believed God. He, He had faith that what God said to him was true, but people can't see Um, those spiritual transactions. And so what was uh, the physical act did God use to confirm Abraham's spiritual transaction? Well, it was the whole incident with his son. Uh, Actually going through the whole process all the way up to raising the knife of sacrificing his son. Uh, Now there's other, you know, there's also the, uh, um, the, the looking forward element of God offering his son. Um, that's definitely uh, one of the reasons for why God chose that particular kind of incident would be showing what God would do for us as well. Um, but yes, it's it's to confirm for Abraham and for us uh, Abraham's faith. So uh, Ephesians two, um, I, I used to say this sometimes that I I wish that. Um, Anybody who quoted Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, would, uh, it would be illegal to quote it without also quoting Ephesians 2, 10. Um, it, it shouldn't be allowed to quote 8 and 9 without quoting 10. So uh, the whole passage, uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And so... Here in Ephesians 2, Paul's actually teaching exactly what James is teaching in James chapter 2, that we're created for good works so that the faith that we have that saves us always um, is validated by good works that we do after we're saved. Um, Always, always, always. There are no exceptions. Um, So, and that's the whole reason given here in Ephesians 2 uh, that we have been created in Christ as a new creation. We're uh, from spiritually dead to spiritually alive, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Well, what's the purpose for that? Uh, here in Ephesians 2.10, we're told that it's for good works. Oh, by the way, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In other words, God had a plan and a purpose when he saved you to do particular good works. Um, that he's got good works for you and for me, something that he wants your he wants your faith to work out in your life as uh, acts of righteousness that he has determined beforehand, and that his Holy Spirit has called and equipped you to. And so, every single follower of Christ has a ministry, has works that God has called you to, and so. If you found those works, fantastic. If you have not found those works, please be in prayer. Please be crying out to the Lord that through His Holy Spirit He would call and equip you to a particular work. Yes? Are the purpose of those works for witness to the unbeliever? Or so, yeah, so we have to put it into context. So what are the, the works? And so... Um, if you look at Galatians chapter 5, there are fruits of the Spirit. If you look at um, 
the descriptions of the church in uh, Colossians 3, for example, there are um, everybody that's, uh, that's called as a believer is supposed to be in a body of believers like this. And everybody in the body of believers has been equipped in a different way. And what is the reason for those things? The, the reasons for those uh, calling and equipping are always twofold. So uh, when you look at your spiritual gifts, always think of it in this terms. Every single spiritual gift is to be exercised in service to others to the glory of God. And so if you, if you think about what you've been equipped and called to do, uh, make sure it always meets those two criteria. A spiritual gift, something that's truly from the Holy Spirit, is always exercised in service to others to the glory of God. If, it's, if it doesn't fit either of those two categories, it's not a spiritual gift and it's not from the Holy Spirit. And so, and, and within the context of the church, the, the spiritual gifts are always talked about as, um, as equipping the body for service to Christ. And so that's what we're all called to do within the context of the church is to use the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given you to equip and build up the body uh, to the glory of Christ. Yep, and the thief on the cross ministered to the other thief on the cross, and he was only a believer for a couple hours before he died. But he still got in. He still Read the story of the thief on the cross, and what did he do in his couple of hours? He was, he was witnessing to that other thief. Uh, really clear. Uh, in that story. So, yes, go ahead. So, yeah, so that's a good question. And so, um, from the perspective of if you have a friend and you don't see, and, and that friend claims to be a Christian, but you don't see any works unto righteousness, you don't see any fruits, um, what should you do? Well, if it's your friend, then you're concerned um, and you want to ask your friend what. Um, you know, bring up a passage like two eight, eight, uh, Ephesians two eight to ten, and say that you've been saved. That's great. And God tells us that when we're saved, we're saved for good works. And um, and what what do you think that means? What do you think that means for your life? Ask the person that. So try to get uh, the person to open up about what they believe is their obligation to their Lord and Savior. Uh, Jesus um, Jesus said things like. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Uh, that's a pretty uh, clear statement that Jesus considers the primary manifestation, the primary um, um, validation of love for him to be obeying his commandments, doing the things that he said to do. Um, and so if you have a person that doesn't um, uh, manifest that kind of fruits and obedience to Christ in their life, Ask them, do you love Jesus? In other words, and, and then then look at then go to this verse and say, well, Jesus said, if you love me, you would obey my commandments. You would be about doing things that I said to do, um, and just get them thinking because the danger is they think they're saved and they're not. Because the Bible says that on that day, the day of judgment, there'll be many people that said, Lord, Lord, did we not do X, Y, and Z? And Jesus says, uh, away from me, I never knew you. And you don't want your friend to be the one that's standing there in shock as they're tossed into the lake of fire. Um, so yeah, if you love the person, you're going to confront them in a loving way, in a loving and gentle way, about this particular issue. Yeah, good point. Because 
there are a lot of people, according to Larry's survey, uh, that uh, there's a lot of people that think they're believers that are not. That The Bible's clear about that, that the, on the last day there's going to be a lot of people that think that they are saved and they're not, and that's very sad. And if you know somebody that, that might be headed in that direction, you, you need to give them some scriptural truth to make them think, to make them, to jog them a little bit. Okay, uh, we're out of time. Let me uh, close this in prayer.